Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 307 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know what that means. We are here to talk about everything that went down this week across NXT and AEW. We had NXT building for its latest premium live event in your house, airing this Saturday, one day before WWE Hell in a Cell, while AEW was coming off its post-pay-per-view edition of Dynamite. As we saw a lot of fallout from Double or Nothing and the beginnings of a build to Forbidden Door, which, by the way, is four weeks away at this point. So they need to get moving on that. We have a lot to talk about today. Yes, not just the ultimate preview for NXT in your house, but of course, the entire MJF uh, situation in AEW. What to believe, what not to believe is working a shoot good is shooting a work bad you know there's a lot to talk about we're gonna get into it all on today's show a reminder as we get started here that the getting over wrestling podcast so please do not forget to head on over to apple Podcasts and spotify leave a five-star rating on apple also leave a review let everyone know why you love the show why you listen why they should subscribe uh these five-star ratings and reviews they mean a lot we did get a couple new ones this week which is great and every time we get a five-star rating or review actually only when it's a review uh we read it here on the podcast so a shout out to joey bag of donuts 1991 hey now a uh, great podcast. Love the Stern references, although I almost want to drop it a star due to the Silver King thinking yellow Gatorade is green. Everyone calls lemon lime yellow Gatorade. All right. I'm going to address this because I did see some tweets. All right. That came in about this. Let me first state that I am completely accepting of most Gatorade flavors being referred to by color. Fruit Punch as red is a great example. Okay. It's red Gatorade. Of course, everyone calls it that. Never in my life. I'm just telling you guys, never in my life have I heard lemon lime Gatorade referred to as yellow Gatorade. Just hasn't happened, okay? For me, growing up here, uh, South Florida, I don't know about the rest of you, it's lemon lime. It always has been. It's the one flavor that stands out from the rest because it was the original. So you didn't have to call it uh, red or orange, which of course is orange, so it's the same, Uh, but orange or blue, you know, which is like a million different blue flavors now. But again, lemon lime has always been Lemon Lime Gatorade in terms of the color. So I did give it a second look. I haven't really had Lemon Lime Gatorade in a long time. I looked at some uh, pictures online of the bottles. I still maintain it's not yellow, but it is yellow green. Like it's, it's not, you know, as green as I was suggesting it was. The green Gatorade that they make now is, it's like a Gatorade Zero or something like that. It's a low calorie version of Lemon Lime that is indeed more of a greenish color. So it is not green like I was suggesting. I will you know, take the, the the hit on that, of course, but it is definitely not yellow. It is like a yellowish green, you know, type of color and it's lemon lime. That's why I call it lemon lime in my head. Lifetime, it's always been lemon lime. I have things in my office right now that I'm looking at that are the color yellow. That Gatorade is a neon yellow green. It is not a just yellow. So therefore, when Chris said that and I thought of yellow Gatorade, well, you kind of think of like yellow snow. That's what came to my mind. And that's why I said what I did uh, about that flavor of Gatorade. So again, it is, I I will state once again, Gatorade over Powerade, lemon lime over any other flavor for life. There's not even a question about it. But thank you for the five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. That way you can, you know, follow us during the week as we talk about professional wrestling. Um, You can also participate in pre- and post-show polls on Twitter. you know, Twitter that we post right before and after premium live events for WWE and pay-per-views, of course, for AEW. You also have the ability to join in our live pre-shows that we do ahead of all premium live events and pay-per-views. We do it usually 30 minutes before the kickoff shows begin. You guys get to talk to us, ask questions, you know, comment on the show and hear our last minute takes on those events. We will have another one before in your house. I'll go over the details of that at the end of the show, uh, just like we had one uh, before AEW Double or Nothing. And of course, we'll also have one Sunday 
uh, ahead of WWE Hell in a Cell. On that note, anyone listening to this podcast who has not already heard our WWE Hell in a Cell Ultimate Preview, that came out on Tuesday, so be sure not to miss that ahead of Hell in a Cell this Sunday. So with all of that out of the way, let's get into today's show. We are going to start with NXT because it is an Ultimate Preview for In Your House. Uh, We will be talking AEW at length, including the entire MJF situation, which will lead off that conversation. If you are someone who doesn't watch NXT, doesn't want to listen to it, head on over to our episode description. We have timestamps for both segments on today's show. But as I always say, I hope that AEW uh, supporters, fans, whatever you want to call yourselves, listen to the NXT stuff and vice versa, because it's really important to know what's going on in wrestling. And if you're not watching a show, uh, this is a really good at least I believe I'll do a little Barry Horowitz, pat myself on the back, a good quick summation of what's going on um, in the world of pro wrestling, at least for this show, NXT and AEW. So as I said, we're starting with NXT, and I will say for a go-home show, this was pretty disappointing. I'm not saying it wasn't entertaining. There were many moments on the show that were enjoyable, but at the same time, it didn't really build that much excitement in me Four in your house. And I think it's largely because the main event of the show is so terrible that the undercard, the rest of the card, it actually is pretty strong, but I'm not juiced up for it as I normally would be with a very strong main event. For example, if this happened to be Braun Breaker, Dolph Ziggler, or Tommaso Ciampa in that spot, I think I'd be pretty excited for in your house overall. Instead, we're stuck with this Joe Gacy storyline that's absolutely going nowhere, and it's crushing my soul every time I have to see it on television. So because of that, really, the go-home show just wasn't a great go-home show, but it was a good it was a good individual episode of television. But the thing that bothered me the most about it, and it's something that's happening with NXT seemingly every week, is they open with a really good match, and they close with a really good match, at least in terms of length of time that they're giving them to get over and wrestle and do all those things. But the rest of the show is three to five minute matches. And that's what happened this week. We got a long match to open. And when I say long, you know, a a long match is 20 minutes plus. These were not that. We got a substantial, let's call it a substantial match to start the show about, you know, 12 to 15 minutes. We got another one, 12 to 15 minutes to close. And then the... Other matches on the show all lasted between three and five minutes. I believe there were four of them. And that is just extremely disappointing because we actually had some fights that I wanted to see. And I was kind of curious what would happen. And the first one of those was Solo Sokoa against Duke Hudson. We're going to talk about everything that happened on NXT that does not directly have to do with In Your House. And then we'll get to the In Your House Ultimate Preview. So because of that, we'll start with Solo Sokoa and Duke Hudson. So Sokoa backstage in the locker room reminded Cameron Grimes he was coming after the North American title next after he defended it against Carmelo Hayes. Hudson looked down on them, suggesting he was the number one contender for the NXT title, given he technically beat Braun Breaker by disqualification last week. The result was a match so Sokoa could prove he's not just at Hudson's level, but beyond it. Hudson dominated early. The crowd was fully behind Sokoa. Solo eventually caught Hudson with a Samoan drop, superkick, and hip attack in the corner before hitting the Uso splash for the win in less than five minutes. Sokoa, he's been on an absolute tear, so he was obviously going to win the match, but I did not understand why it was so short when Hudson is someone who's been featured on television consistently. He just fought the champion last week in, I think, a match that was longer than this, and then he goes up against Sokoa and basically gets squashed. I mean, it wasn't a squash, but you understand what I'm saying. This should have been nine or 10 minutes at minimum. It was another good look for Solo, but it was a really bad look for Hudson, completely unnecessarily. Uh, Roxanne Perez and Tiffany Stratton, that is going to be the finals of the NXT breakout tournament, and that is happening next Wednesday, but they gave us kind of this overall preview on the show. Grayson Waller held court in front of a bunch of newbies, praising Stratton and insulting Fallon Henley. Briggs heard him and promised a country ass beating. There was also a long video package with Perez talking about her journey and everything she sacrificed to be in NXT. She talked about Cora Jade being right alongside her as a sister in arms. Perez talked about Stratton being bigger and stronger, but not having her heart. Stratton later said in a video package that she's been so successful that she always expects to win. She also did like a bratty turn about Cora riding buses and missing prom, uh, promising that she would be the one who takes the tournament. 
Jade's was a pure white meat babyface package. It definitely got the job done. Stratton's was meant to be annoying, but the voice and gimmick, it was still a little bit grating for me. Still, I will say it successfully set up the finals of the breakout tournament. So they did a good job. In terms of like who's going to win that tournament, you know, it's tough because Perez really should win. Um, And if Stratton wins and Mandy Rose is still champion, then it's heel heel. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. So I'm gonna probably predict Perez winning here. But given the focus they've put on her and Cora Jade over the last couple of weeks, it does kind of feel like they're setting them up to be a tag team, possibly to take the titles off of Toxic Attraction. Now that's going to counter what my prediction is later in the show, but that's like part B. So if, if Perez doesn't win, or even if she does win and loses to Mandy Rose, I could totally see her falling into a tag team with Cora Jade and that being the direction they go with them. That of course would be fully determined on what happens in the NXT Women's Tag Team Championship match. We're going to talk about that later. Uh, We also had Waller against Briggs from Briggs and Jensen. Sophia Cromwell and Robert Stone walked down after a couple of minutes as Briggs was kind of dominating Waller. Von Wagner hopped onto the ring apron as a distraction. Waller caught Briggs with a rolling cutter to get the win in four minutes. Wagner attacked after the bell and wrapped Briggs' arm around the post to match Jensen's injury. Jensen made the save. Continuing the storyline made sense here. The, the match was a bunch of nothing. This was the only match on the show that I did not mind being short because Waller should beat Briggs and I don't need to see Briggs get over on Waller in any particular way. Uh, Wesley fought Zion Quinn. Lee was down in the dumps backstage before good guy Sanga, I guess, uh, stepped up to give him confidence, saying he may not be a giant, but he has a giant heart. Quinn dominated early and threw Lee like a lawn dart into the middle turnbuckle. It was actually a pretty great spot. Lee's only offense came when he ducked Quinn's finisher and grabbed him for a really tight roll-up win. The match went three minutes, which given the booking, I mean, I guess it was okay because it was going to be a surprise ending anyway, but they made a guy who has already been a two-time NXT Tag Team Champion and a Dusty Cup winner look like he can't compete, which it just puts a sour taste in my mouth. Like in wrestling history, of course, the storyline of small guy versus big guy, we've done it a million times. We know the small guy can win at this point. We've seen Rey Mysterio do it. Uh, to a, you know, he's bigger than Rey Mysterio, but to a lesser extent, we've seen Daniel Bryan overcome much bigger obstacles in terms of opponents. And now we're doing it with Wesley, where like this guy who's electric, the fans love, they want to root for him. He's just like a depressed character who's not actually depressed. And Sangha, for some reason, is the one propping him up. Again, if this leads to like a Drake Maverick, Killian Dane tag team between them, that's going to be a disaster. I mean, it may be fun for a couple of weeks, but long-term for Wesley, I don't know that's, that that's a good thing. So I don't know what they're doing. I don't know why they're doing it. It's just, it's really not working for me. I thought they had something that first week when Wesley showed up after Nash Carter got fired and he kind of cut that promo and then he went off on the beach. I was like, all right, they're doing something with him. But ever since they've brought him back from that, they gave it no time to breathe and he's losing matches and winning via roll-up. And it's just like, what's the point? What are you trying to accomplish with this guy? For me right now, it's not working. Uh, Cora Jade fought Electra Lopez. I probably should have had this up a little bit higher. Uh, Lopez dominated early and hit a sit-down powerbomb, but Jade grabbed the bottom rope. She knocked Lopez off the ropes with a knee and hit a flying senton for the win in five minutes. Lopez hasn't really been established as a threat, but at the same time, this was way too easy of a win for Cora Jade. Given Lopez is with Legato del Fantasma, she's a bigger woman, she's stronger than her, Like, this is the minimal acceptable length for a match, five minutes, but it definitely could have used three or four more to let Lopez get in some offense and have Jade's win be a little bit more surprising. But again, when you have, you know, people like Cora Jade and Alexa Bliss winning really short matches against bigger opponents like this with, you know, flying sentons and twisted bliss, it's not real. It doesn't create any sense of realism, which is what we want As a viewer, I don't want to have to think, well, that would never happen at the end of a match. It should be, oh yeah, okay, she knocked her out with a punch or she threw her into the post before doing that and knocked her out cold. Like you have to establish something here and having like Bliss and Jade win matches this easily and this in this short of fashion, it really just doesn't make sense. Uh, Thea Hale sat down for her college commitment ceremony after graduating from high school over the weekend. 
Notre Dame, Alabama, and North Carolina had hats on the table. She threw all of them away and committed to Chase U. Andre Chase and the student section all popped huge in a simulcast. Uh, How the hell I did not see this coming, I will never know. It was right in front of us the entire time. I honestly feel stupid for not realizing this is what they were going to do. It was funny. It was fun. It was cute. It was a really good little segment that got a pop from the crowd and has Thea Hale off on this trajectory where, hey, she's a rookie. She's coming in. No one really has a reason to get behind her, but now they've aligned her with this you know, group. It's burgeoning faction, maybe. That is over. JCU is straight up over. The thing that was missing here was I don't think we saw Saray. And I really wanted to see Saray as part of this. But look, Thea Hale alongside Chase U starting her career, her first gimmick. It was a good one. That was a good one, yeah. Uh, There was also another vignette for Giovanni Vinci. It was boring as sin. I don't want to go over it again. I have to believe it's Fabian Eichner. I hope he, when he redebuts, he looks good, sounds good. I hope it's well packaged. Uh, But the vignettes are not good. That's as simple as I'll put it. So that was it for NXT that did not have to do with In Your House which means it's time to move on to that NXT In Your House Ultimate Preview. We're going to go over every match on the card along with the go-home segments from NXT. Uh, And the first one is going to be Legato Del Fantasma against Tony D'Angelo, Stax, and Two Dimes in a six-man tag. The squads had their sit-down meeting on a yacht. D'Angelo and Santos Escobar got aggressive. Their seconds tried to get involved but were silenced. Uh, Lopez said Escobar already beat D'Angelo, so there was no reason for them to rematch. D'Angelo suggested a six-man tag with the losers moving under the direction of the winners. They shook on it. This was still very D-movie-like, just like the last meeting, but this one was produced better than the other one. It just was better, top to bottom. I was hoping the stipulation would be losers leave town. I mean, I don't know how many times on this podcast I need to talk about Legato Del Fantasma being ready for the main roster a year ago, at least six months ago, and here we are. There's a perfect stipulation, loser leaves town, that could be used to split this up and have this entire thing make sense. And instead, they're having the losers of this match work under the leadership of the winners. That, to me, is just nonsensical. Uh, I I don't know how it's going to work. It seems like it's not necessarily destined to fail, but it seems like a storyline that's almost go nowhere. Because how long is it actually going to work out? that the losers work under the winners. You have to imagine it won't for a very long period of time. They'll split up quickly. And then what? They fight again? Maybe they do a loser leaves town at that point. If that's what happens, I'll be more okay with it. But it just seems like this is going to keep going endlessly when all of these guys should be involved in something better. I I don't see a, a way that they have Escobar and Legato get over Tony D'Angelo, who is someone clearly they're building twice. So even though if it was me with the book, if I was HBK and I could book this and figure it out, I would have Legato Del Fantasma win. I wouldn't think twice about it. My prediction for In Your House is, I don't even know what these guys are called. They should have a name at this point, but Tony D'Angelo stacks and two dimes uh, going ahead and beating Legato Del Fantasma. It's going to be a tag team championship match, pretty deadly against the Creed brothers. And a lot happened leading into this. So first we had Pretty deadly against Roderick Strong and Damon Kemp in a non-title match. Kemp told the Creeds and Ivy Nile they had the night off and did not need to accompany them to ringside. They were, of course, confused by this and wondering what's going on. Kemp showed out early with a lot of high energy and a slingshot spear plus stereo backbreakers from Strong into the champions. More backbreakers came on Strong's hot tag. Kemp got run into the steps outside. Pretty deadly. Both grabbed title belts for a distraction attack. The Creeds came in to help, but Julius got hit with one of the titles. The referee was then slow counting a strong pinning combination, and he got caught with spilt milk for the loss in 13 minutes. Strong was infuriated backstage. Ivy explained that Julius saved him. He calmed down, but noted they would have won via disqualification, so there really was no reason for them to interfere. Strong demanded they listen to him because he knows what's best. He said the Creeds must win at In Your House, or they would be kicked out of Diamond Mine. So this match was a blast. It was a great TV opener. I expected Kemp to take the fall, but strong losing did advance the faction infighting. I went 3.25 stars and a B for the match. It could have gone higher except for the finish. Uh, the backstage segment, it continued the intrigue here with Diamond Mine. 
On one hand, this could be a send-off storyline, given there have been reports that Strong asked for his release months ago, or it could just be a really compelling storyline that's taking me on a ride. Either way, I'm interested in it. Uh, We will just have to see it in your house and beyond. And then we had Ivy Nile. She was doing push-ups backstage. When Kiana James asked if all she does is work out, she wondered if Nile was long for Diamond Mine, saying the Creed Brothers only had a 12% chance of winning. Her gimmick is like being a statistician and bookworm. It's not good at all. Uh, Niall asked for the odds of James not getting her ass kicked and then stormed off. The acting on James's part, it was just rough as hell. And the whole segment kind of came out of nowhere. We ended up with Niall and James as a match. Ivy completely dominated and hit a running thrust kick for a near fall. James screamed that it's brains over brawn and tried proving it by countering Niall's choke into a backslide for a near fall. Ivy then hit a great turnover slam for the win in four minutes. Pretty deadly taunted after the bell. The Creeds came out to get her back and cleaned house. The match was again not much of anything given its time. James did not impress. Niall once again looked awesome. So that leads us to the NXT Tag Team Championship match, pretty deadly, and the Creed brothers. And I'm really of a mixed mind here, right? Because on one hand, I'm looking at uh, LA Knight over in uh, WWE on SmackDown right now, Max Dupree. And I'm thinking this guy needs male models. And if you're if, if you're trying to single out a couple people as male models in this company right now, it's pretty deadly. Their gimmick fits. They have the look. Bring them up right away. Put them under Max Dupree. However, uh, I don't know that that's happening. And I can't necessarily tell you that it would make sense for NXT to call up this team, give them the championships right away, and then inside of two months, move them over to the main roster. On the other hand, uh, the Creed brothers being exiled from Diamond Mine if they lose doesn't really make any sense. They're the hottest tag team in NXT right now, and they really should be winning the championships. You could make an argument they should have won them at the last event. So, you know, at the risk of just being completely dead wrong here, and and I have a feeling this is going to be a wrong prediction, but I'm going to pick the Creed brothers to win the titles, kind of calm the infighting in Diamond Mine, and... I think Pretty Deadly may get the call-up because they're not needed right now in NXT and they're over as heels, like they're doing a good job, but I don't really know that they fit with what NXT is doing. I don't know that they are necessary to be there. So that's what I'm going to go with. Again, I'm making that prediction, but I I really have a feeling that Pretty Deadly is going to win, the Creeds are going to get exiled, and we're just not going to, this Diamond Mine's going to implode somehow. But I'm going in the other direction because they really should be taking the titles at this show and I hope you know, sense prevails when it comes to the creeds. Uh, We'll go to the North American Championship, Cameron Grimes against Carmelo Hayes. On the go-home NXT, we had Grimes against Nathan Frazier. Uh, Hayes and Trick Williams joined commentary for the main event. Frazier was on absolute fire from bell to bell. He had a great springboard moonsault into a sling blade for a near fall. Grimes got his knees up on the standing shooting star. Frazier got a near fall victory roll before Grimes Caught him with a huge urinagi for another near fall. The crowd was hot as hell for this match, chanting NXT. They traded big kicks with Frazier countering a powerbomb into a hurricanrana. He did a flip slam and a 2.8 count. Grimes caught Frazier on the ropes with a release avalanche German suplex and came back with the cave Grimes dodged Trick Williams and Trick saved Hayes from being beat down after the bell. This was an absolute banger of a match. Nonstop action for 10 minutes. I went four stars and A- minus for the sprint. It was the second best match of the week from TV. The best one was on AEW Dynamite. We'll talk about that a little bit later. The post-match here was a bunch of whatever. It was a really good go-home moment to promote what's likely going to be a show-stealing match between Grimes and Hayes at In Your House. As far as that match goes, you know, I don't think you put the title on Grimes this quick, quickly to remove it off of him. It's one thing to do it with Pretty Deadly, who are kind of still getting established. Grimes has been there. This was the mountaintop moment for him. We've been waiting for him to win singles gold. He finally did it to put it right back on Carmelo Hayes. I mean, it wouldn't be the worst thing because Hayes, as the A champion gimmick, it works and it continues to work. But I mean, Carmelo Hayes is someone who should be moving up this card. He should be going after the NXT championship and Braun Breaker. That should be a big time feud that probably culminates SummerSlam weekend in whatever special event NXT does. It could, you know, Hayes could beat Breaker that weekend and it would make all the sense in the world. So putting him back with the North American Championship doesn't really make sense. And you already have a number one contender in Solo Sokoa waiting. 
uh, for a match. If you wanted to change the title, I would much rather you wait and put it on Sokoa, who could use the elevation, than Hayes, who's already had it. So I don't think they changed the title here. I don't necessarily know how they end the match. Hopefully it's super clean, but I do have Grimes retaining the North American Championship over Carmelo Hayes. Uh, we'll move to the three final matches. Uh, the two women's segments, we're gonna, or the two women's matches, I should say, we're going to talk about them together because they did one go-home segment on NXT. So let's talk about the go-home segment, and then we'll go over the matches. It was a double contract signing for both women's championships, the single and the tag team. The Casey's cut Toxic Attraction off, saying they've been talking shit for eight months, and it's enough. Toxic put over their domination. Carter pointed out they hardly defend the titles, and that the Casey's were a real team and the only ones to ever beat them. Toxic made fun of them for being short. Wendy Chu interrupted every now and then while they were arguing back and forth, saying, just sign the contract. She was hysterical, and the fans actually started chanting, just sign the contract, like halfway into the segment. It was so freaking funny as well. Mandy Rose was trying to fight through it all, um, the chants and stuff, but she really struggled because the chants were so loud, saying the pressure was on her to ensure a child wasn't champion. She demanded respect on her name and finally signed it. At that moment, Chu shot a spitball at Rose. The KCs had a pair of tornillos on Toxic outside. Then they saved Chu from an attack and took Mandy out with a codebreaker and superkick before Chu put her through a table with a nap time elbow drop. She was dressed as a cow in a cow costume. I already tweeted the, the gif. I promise you it's going to be the uh, one that comes with this show as well. It's one of my favorite things I've seen in wrestling all year. I just loved it. When I saw these six in the ring, I thought this segment might be an absolute disaster. Instead, it was absolutely incredible. Between the comedy, the action, the setup for the respective matches, I don't know that I really could have asked for more. This entire thing completely worked for me. I like it. I like it a lot. Now, as far as the title matches go, of course, we have the Women's Tag Team Championship Toxic Attraction defending against Caden Carter and Katana Chance, and the Women's Championship, Mandy Rose, defending against Wendy Chu. My overall take on this is is simple. I'm done with Toxic Attraction. I just am. Uh, I'm at least done with them being champions. The reign has been extremely long. It has not included many good matches. It hasn't included many good storylines. Um... I do think Mandy Rose has grown significantly in confidence on the mic, the way she carries herself. And that's a positive. JC Jane and Gigi Dolan, they've come along, I think, as well. They've they've certainly developed in the group. But I don't necessarily know that either of them is better off being in a team, being together, being part of this than they would have been separately, especially Gigi Dolan. She has an extremely high ceiling that I don't necessarily know is being met. Uh, through this group. But them as champions, it's just been grading. Um, the women's division in NXT, it has such a significant level of talent. Yes, a lot of it's young and inexperienced, but a lot of it is not. They have people, um, you know, Alba Fire, Saray, a ton of women in this company still, uh, Indy Hartwell, that could really be interesting to have championship runs and, and be able to carry the division. And it's just been stuck in this toxic attraction, neutral gear for a really long period of time. So I don't know if it's my dissatisfaction with them that makes me lean into a t- at least one title change on this show. But you also all know, anyone who's listened to this podcast, I have been a massive fan of the Casey's as a tag team, really since they got together, but especially over the last six or nine months. They've they've really come up with a nice you know gimmick. They do more tag team wrestling moves, like assisted moves, than probably any other women's tag team in WWE history. I'm including like Boss and Hug Connection, Golden Role Models, whatever you want to call them, uh, Kabuki Warriors. Like they actually have developed together as a tag team, which is insane to me that they have not been called up to the main roster, given Casey Catanzaro's star quality, uh, the way they look together, the excitement that they bring when they come out, fans actually get juiced for them, what they do in the ring. They're an awesome team. So I would love to have them on the main roster. It just doesn't really seem like that's happening. But one or two things need to go down at the end of this match. Either they leave NXT after not winning the titles, 
Because if they lose this match, there is legitimately nothing else left for them in NXT. Or they win the championships. So because I'm in this kind of zone right now where I'm questioning, you know, the WWE Women's Tag Team Championships on the main roster, are they even going to do a tournament at this point? I still think they will because they kind of want to stick it to Sasha and Naomi, but I don't necessarily know. Um, And knowing that these tag team titles need to be changed sooner than later, I'm going to go ahead and pick uh, Caden Carter and Katana Chance to win the tag team championships off of Toxic Attraction with a caveat. If they do not win, then I'm going to pick Cora Jade and Roxanne Perez as the team who beats them. It has to be one of the two and it has to be soon. Just they need to make the move. As far as the women's championship, Mandy Rose and Wendy Chu, Wendy's super over and I love her. She's great. The gimmick's great. It's hitting on all cylinders. She's not a women's champion. This is not a gimmick that you give a championship to. It's it's as simple as that. So Mandy Rose, I have to believe, is definitely going to retain in this match. I don't mind that Wendy got a shot. It just doesn't seem like it was really the right way to go. As far as who takes the title off Mandy, uh, I mean, you can make a case for Cora Jade just because of how much uh, they've put behind her. You could make a case for Roxanne Perez just because of how good she is at, at such a young age already starting. But both of them being 19, seemingly about to get into a tag team, I don't necessarily know that you need to do that. Um, The other thing you could do, by the way, is have Roxanne Perez win the breakout tournament and use the title opportunity to challenge for the tag team titles. I don't think she would do that. That really wouldn't make a lot of sense in kayfabe, but that is another option. Anyway, coming back to this, there's a lot of great women on this roster. If they need someone to take the title off Mandy Rose and they want it to be someone strong, then it makes the most sense by far for it to be Alba Fire, uh, the former Kaylee Ray. She could step right in as champion, be dominant just like she was in NXT UK and get a lot of attention on the division. But again, one way or another, the titles need to change soon. I will pick a change for the tag team titles. It's more want than smart predicting. Uh, But I, I hope that something exciting happens on the show. And given the only other potential title change I think is out there, is the Creed's over pretty deadly. It would be pretty cool, I think, to get one or two title changes on the same show. I think they're going to come from the tag team division, both male and female. And lastly, we have the NXT Championship on the line, Braun Breaker against Joe Gacy with a stipulation. Breaker will lose the title if he gets disqualified from the match. Uh, Gacy on NXT, the go-home, narrated a video package that showed a bunch of Steiner Brothers footage explaining that he learned from his father and uncle, he being Braun, how to be aggressive, uh, but that his anger had been unchecked for years. Uh, Wrestling was supposed to be an outlet for that, Gacy said, but Braun can't even control himself in the ring. Gacy's goal was to convince Braun it's more important to get even with him, obviously with the hope he'll uh, get disqualified, um, giving Gacy the title, than just beating him clean one, two, three. Breaker backstage said he wouldn't lose the title again, when Gacy's laugh played over some really shitty speakers with a couple of lights flashing in the locker room. Breaker lost his mind at that and destroyed a TV. He said his predictability is a strength and he'll rip Gacy apart Saturday. Gacy's video package was actually well done, so I'm not gonna hate on that too much, but the Braun backstage segment was so eye-rolling. I think I blacked out for a moment watching it. This feud cannot end soon enough. Please, for the love of all that is holy, I never want these guys feuding ever again after Saturday. I don't want it in NXT. I don't want it five years from now when they're both on SmackDown. Gacy needs a third gimmick change. Braun needs to go up against someone where he can actually showcase his ability and not be thrown into this dumb, uncontrollable baby face storyline that makes him look like an absolute idiot. This thing has been terrible from the start. The fact that it is continuing to this point that we're having another premium live event or special show match between these guys. It is just unfathomable to me that they have not figured out how bad this is. That is one big pile of shit. I am pissed off. I'm pissed to the highest level of pissivity. This needs to end. It needs to end now. And it needs to end with Braun Breaker retaining the championship and going on to something much bigger and better. I would not hate if another main roster superstar 
came down to challenge. I wouldn't hate if Carmelo Hayes moved into that role. They gave him a Duke Hudson feud. I don't care what they do as long as it does not involve Joe Gacy. He needs to be off TV for two months and completely repackaged again. I'm referring to Gacy there. That's it. So in terms of a uh, pre-show expectation grade for NXT in your house, it is difficult because the main event is so weak. And even the women's match, Mandy Rose against Wendy Chu, Wendy's good in the ring. We know Mandy really isn't that good. She's very much in the Britt Baker kind of area of wrestling, maybe slightly worse than Baker. Um, But the two main matches, your co-main events, are the weakest ones on the show. Everything else actually has an opportunity to be a banger, like Grimes Hayes, banger. The women's tag match, potential banger. Uh, Pretty Deadly Creed's banger. And Legato against D'Angelo and his guys, uh, you know, big potential there as well to be a good match. So, you know, I, I guess I have to go with a flat B as an expectation grade. There's a chance that they surprise somehow with either of those big matches. That's really the only way, though, I see the show being better than a B. I do not think it has a ceiling in the A range. The ceiling, I think, is B+. Uh, The floor is in the C range. Like, this could be a bad show. It legitimately could be. But it's very rare that NXT puts on a special show that does not deliver to at least some degree. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, go with a B here, um, and we'll see what happens. We'll see if they over-deliver or under-deliver. But a reminder that we will have the NXT In Your House pre-show, Uh, 30 minutes before the kickoff show begins on Saturday. And we will also have NXT In Your House instant analysis Saturday night as soon as this show goes off the air. With that, we can move over to AEW Dynamite, the uh, first post Double or Nothing AEW television show. So we got fallout from Double or Nothing. AEW began building kind of a little bit for Forbidden Door. But the story of the entire show was AEW announcing a couple hours before broadcast that we will hear from MJF, which is how they promote uh, in-ring, you know, promo segments. And we indeed did that. Uh, We got to hear from him, that is. MJF came out for the second segment of Dynamite. His music cut off early and he got a chorus of boos. He said he's in a lot of pain, but the fans want to hear him talk. So he'll talk as Max Friedman, not MJF. He cut a promo on his boss, mentioning the important business developments going on right now. Warner, Discovery, that whole deal. Fans chanted, shut the fuck up. And then he went off talking about how many moments he's created for AEW. And then he got cheers. MJF called out the dual responses, said the fans shit on him all weekend long, as did the boys in the back. He said he didn't want to be in AEW anymore and called the fans uneducated marks who didn't know shit. MJF pointed out that fans used to say he sucked in the ring and then became surprised when he was good. He said he's the best in the world because he's the only one who makes people feel. MJF called himself a generational talent who gets taken for granted by the fans and the big man. He said Statman Tony, obviously referring to Tony Khan, uh, knows he's the second biggest minute for minute draw in AEW, but won't pay him so he can save his money for ex-WWE guys. And he used that term calling out WWE specifically. The crowd erupted at that line. He asked if he would be treated better if he was an ex-WWE guy and suggested the boss belongs in the crowd as a fan, not backstage running the company. MJF demanded to be fired and called Tony a fucking mark and screamed, fire me, fire me twice more. Uh, It was bleeped out way too well, proving that it was clearly planned. And then the mic cut off and the screen went black. Commentary did not mention the segment when it returned from commercial break, which again, is something that you would do if it's a work. If it was a shoot, they would mention it and say, hey, go, folks, sorry about that. You know, that was not intentional, blah, blah, blah. Lots to unpack coming out of this. First, it is quite comical that Tony Khan insisted for such a long time he would not be part of the show and now seems to be doing his own version of Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Mr. McMahon. Now, whether this is a face turn for MJF or not, And it's almost certainly a face or at least a tweener turn at a minimum. It's clear that they have set him up to be the guy battling the authority. It's really just a different twist on Austin McMahon when you think about it. The only real question here is whether Tony appears on screen, which I have to believe he will, given Cody Rhodes isn't there to be his proxy in a feud or something like that. If not, 
The other option is for CM Punk to be that representative, the company guy, the ex-WWE guy, the top paid guy, with MJF presumably winning the title off of him maybe around Labor Day. I could fully see that as a possibility, and it would be quite a reversal of roles for Punk to kind of take on that situation instead of being the anti-authority guy, which of course he was in WWE. But as far as the promo goes, it was dynamite. Uh, No pun intended when I say that. MJF was outstanding. Everything he said was on point. It was balls on accurate. The delivery was fantastic. The passion was obvious. And he had the crowd fully in the palm of his hand with every single word. He hit every note perfectly and did his best to make it look like a shoot, even though it was obviously a work. The realism, it did dissipate at the end a little bit with the bleep. As we discussed, it was overly staged, but it was still a promo of the year contender and probably the favorite for promo of the year five months in. What it was not was a pipe bomb. Go back and watch the pipe bomb from CM Punk. You'll realize it's in a different league from this. But this was, in many ways, a guy yelling, a venting frustration. It was the buildup to this promo that helped it land with such a high level of impact, not just the promo itself. So it was great. It was memorable. It's going to be on greatest of all time lists, most likely, probably in the lower half of a top 10 or top 15. But it was not a pipe bomb, as far as I'm concerned. It was not Uh, the best promo of all time or a top five promo of all time, not even close. But that's not saying it wasn't fantastic because it was indeed fantastic and MJF deserves a lot of credit for bringing it right there. The last topic to cover here, of course, is whether this was a work all along with MJF and TK. And I'm starting to believe that it's a really strong possibility dating back not just to the meet and greet, but literally to the start of these reports. Now, if they had MJF skip that meet and greet for a work, That is extremely poor business and a terrible look, no matter how you slice it. They deserve a lot of criticism for it. But I'm seeing people who criticized this for five days saying now they don't care either way if it's a work or a shoot. And that, of course, is bullshit. And it's typical of the way that AEW supporters act as if the company can do no wrong. It's why many people backed AEW in the MJF story, which they would never do for a similar situation in WWE. There's also a conversation to be had around the industry's reporters, all of whom reported this as if it were a shoot up to and through Double or Nothing. Now, perhaps it was, but it certainly feels more and more like a lot of people got worked on at least 50% of what happened. It feels like seeds were planted a couple months ago to begin with, and those were seeds planted on purpose. Everyone bought in, and TK and MJF took everyone for a ride. That speaks to the fact that this industry does not practice capital J journalism, and it also speaks to the potential gullibility of some of these people because they treat Tony Khan like a friend and a buddy and someone that they get to have fun with talking about AEW as opposed to the owner and lead creative director of a professional wrestling company. Of course, I don't know that it was a work the entire time, but it sure feels like many of these guys took the bait. I mean, there were reports he was gonna be off TV for an extended period of time, and the guy shows up 72 hours after being stretchered to the back, walking fine to cut a promo on one of AEW's biggest dynamites of the entire year. So they literally did a stretcher spot to work everyone even more. For him to show up immediately after that seems to prove out that this was a work and probably a long-term work. Unless they somehow miraculously came to terms in 72 hours and got this guy from going home to showing up on Dynamite and running a huge angle with a huge promo, I'm sorry, I don't necessarily believe that. Now, if it did start as a shoot, then that's good that they were able to take a shoot and turn it into a work. What does that mean for MJF? Did he get a raise? Did he get an extension? Running this angle with about 18 months left on his contract and possibly not having him extended, it would be a really big mistake for AEW. And I have to believe that's not the case because this is the type of angle that can only end with the guy winning the world title. It feels in many ways like TK is trying to combine Austin McMahon and Cena Punk all into one. And that will be great TV, no doubt, if they're able to do it. But at this point, I'm waiting to see what all the people who reported on this have to say. And right now, it's been radio silence. Okay, let's move on to the rest of Dynamite. We had Miro make his return against Johnny Elite. Miro cut a tape promo on God before making his return after seven months away. 
He dominated early. Johnny went on a run with his signature moves. He was supposed to miss like this parkour type of move, but instead booted Miro in the chest. Miro then hit a pump kick and won with game over in seven minutes. Half the match took place during commercials and they immediately cut away after the bell. So we didn't even get like Miro soaking in his first victory in seven months. Really good to see him back. It kind of felt like a lackluster return. I presume this means that having Johnny Elite in this match, he's not being signed immediately or at least not long-term because for him to come in and lose two straight matches, including being fed to Miro, it just really kind of wouldn't make sense. Not to mention the fact that he's not needed, as we've mentioned before. Uh, One side note is this match happened immediately after the MJF promo. So the guy makes a really big statement about Tony overpaying ex-WWE guys instead of him, and we right away get a match with two ex-WWE guys. If that wasn't purposeful by Tony, and it was happenstance, it proves a lot of what we were saying. If it was purposeful from Tony, then that was a really great touch to MJF's promo, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. But on that note, I actually did a little bit of a count, and it's not something I've ever really done before, because it doesn't matter much, but 11 of the 17 on-screen personalities, wrestlers, managers, people like that, in the first hour of the show were former WWE people compared to 14 of 33 in hour two. So you're talking about less than 50% in hour two and far more than 50%, like way more in hour one. I found that to be extremely interesting. Again, I don't know if it was on purpose, but I have noted previously that AEW front, front loads its shows with a lot of former WWE people, the most recognizable biggest names because they, you know, Khan, he is so concentrated on ratings and he should be. You know, I'm not trying to suggest, I never am trying to suggest that that these promoters shouldn't do what they can to uh, keep the ratings as high as possible for their shows. But with AEW, it is so obviously such a concerted effort to front load Dynamite with the Jerichos and the Punks and the Moxies and the Danielsons in an effort to keep people and retain them as long as they possibly can through hour two. Anyway, let's get off that. Let's keep going. Uh, the show opened with CM Punk and FTR the Bret Hart uh, Mutual Masturbation Society against Max Caster and Gun Club. Caster absolutely nailed his rap this time. He even dropped an Amber Heard line in there. Punk tried to springboard on a hat tag, but slipped and fell. Uh, So look, how about we just stop having Punk do moves around the ropes? I think that's the, you know, that's what they need to do at this point. He had an elbow drop on Austin Gunn when Billy Gunn jumped on the ring apron to distract him with a crotch chop. Punk powerbombed Austin into Billy, hit a GTS, and FTR added the big rig for the win. Nice little match. It did get extremely sloppy in the finish. Punk and FTR, though, worked very well together as a trio. After the bell, Punk got chance and said, this might be what it feels like to do drugs. He said he's made mistakes and is still learning, but he's the champion. Dax Harwood basically said, I've done drugs, and said his family is the only thing more important to him than professional wrestling, and anyone who insults them can get their ass kicked. It was a very strange promo from Dax, really, and Punk too. Both of them were weird. Punk then said he wanted to learn his Forbidden Door Challenger and Hiroshi Tanahashi made his entrance and that was it. He just kind of stood there and then they went to the next segment. It was the right booking for Punk uh, if Kenta wasn't going to do it, but I'd have liked something to chew on a little bit here. A A tease for next week. Tanahashi saying something. Punk responding to him appearing. Um, anything. Commentary, I don't think they even sold Tanahashi that well. I don't know if they mentioned that he's an eight-time IWGP heavyweight champion. Uh, you know, he's great. They said he's the ace of New Japan. That's true. But I, I want more. Like, most of the audience does not know New Japan. It's as simple as that. How about a short video package later in the show to promote what he's all about? It just kind of left a lot to be desired in terms of a main event match announcement for this massive Forbidden Door pay-per-view. And I'm someone who is incredibly excited about this event in four weeks. But for it to be that lackluster, I don't really understand why they didn't make a bigger deal out of it. Very strange. Uh, One thing from Rampage, since we mentioned Caster, uh, Dante Martin fought him. Martin snapped Caster's neck over the top rope. He hit Nosedive for the win. Nosedive, it's an impressive move athletically. It's not a finisher. It just doesn't work for me as a finishing move for Dante Martin. More like a setup move. The match was fine on Rampage, nothing special. On Dynamite, Scorpio Sky, Ethan Page, 
and Dan Lambert all laughed at Martin's chances of winning the TNT title off of him. Martin stopped Sky from snapping and said he would prove that he's better. And that was it. Again, nothing that special there. Uh, Jericho Appreciation Society came out to celebrate their anarchy in the arena of victory. Chris Jericho was angry. Eddie Kingston tried to light him on fire and said they proved that sports entertainers always win over wrestlers. Kingston cut him off with William Regal on the stage, saying he would fight them four on one if he had to. Kingston then handed the mic to Regal so he could say blood and guts. Uh, It didn't really come across with the same gusto as War Games, which is what they wanted. I get it. Whatever. Jericho refused the challenge. Kingston ran down. JAS attacked him. Ortiz then hit Jericho with a mad ball from behind and cut off a lock of his hair. That was apparently enough for Jericho to accept the challenge, but he also demanded a hair versus hair match against Ortiz. So let's start with Kingston. His level of rage and passion, it is unmatched right now. The guy is incredible every single time he's on screen. There's probably no wrestler in any company who is more believable as their gimmick, as their character, than Eddie Kingston. He is real and authentic every single time that you see him. I'm still not a huge fan of JAS and their gimmick, but their interaction with Kingston's crew and Blackpool Combat Club, it all works extremely well. This will be a great match. What's very strange is the hair versus hair match is happening like two or three weeks after Blood and Guts, which is going down three days after Forbidden Door. AEW on Dynamite announced four special events all during Dynamite, which to me was overload. It's like we have Road Rager and Blood and Guts and this one, and Detroit is going to be a special show and Forbidden Door is coming up. It was like, hey, like two things at a time, maybe like let's, let's, you know, bring it back a little bit. And again, the hair versus hair match is probably happening because one of them, Jericho or Ortiz, wants to shave their head or change their hairstyle. And that's fine. So it's a good reason to do a hair versus hair match. But you do it before Blood and Guts, not afterward. It's just very weird the way they're doing it. So whatever. Uh, continuing the BCC JAS feud was the main event. John Moxley against Daniel Garcia. Uh, Jericho and Regal were both on commentary. Mox bladed five minutes into the match for no reason whatsoever. Garcia dropkick stares into his leg. Mox went full crimson mask and did a release suplex of Garcia throwing him back first into the side corner of the steps. It was one of the nastiest bumps I have ever seen with steel steps. I have no idea how he was okay and not like seriously injured from that bump. Mox did a front chancery into an avalanche suplex. They began countering submissions. Garcia hit a pile driver for a 2.5 and then put Mox in the sharpshooter. Garcia leaned a little bit too far back. So Mox got out of it with a bulldog choke. Mox put Garcia over a table outside when Jericho ran down to try to do like a distraction. Mox rolled away from Garcia, hit Paradigm Shift, and locked in the Bulldog Choke for the submission win as Kingston attacked Jericho at ringside. This was better than more than half of the matches on Double or Nothing. Just an absolute banger in every conceivable way. I could have done without an element or two, like the Crimson Mask, the blading. It was completely unnecessary, but Mox is going to Mox, and you just know that's going to happen. Uh, I went 4.25 stars and an A. Easily the match, not just of the night, uh, but the TV match of the week, better than the uh, Cameron Grimes and um, Nathan Frazier match on NXT. Garcia's got a bright future. And as we've said about many other young talents recently, Danny Garcia has it. Uh, Red Dragon, the Young Bucks, and Hiku Leo fought Matt Hardy, Darby Allen, Christian Cage, and Jurassic Express in a 10-man tag team match. Adam Cole was on commentary. I was not going to bother trying to recap the entire 10-man match, especially refereed by Rick Knox. Jungle Boy hit Matt Jackson with a Canadian Destroyer, and Luchasaurus tagged Nick with a standing moonsault. Hardy hit Leo with a twist of fate, and Christian speared him off the apron. The Bucks hit Superkick Party on Jurassic Express. Red Dragon hit Hilo on Hardy, and the Bucks hit a Melter Driver on Jungle Boy for the win. Christian didn't let Jungle Boy hug Hardy after the bell, pulling him and Luchasaurus aside. So AEW booked the team that lost to the Hardys and had them beat the champions clean, forcing Jungle Boy to take the fall in a 10-man. Even if it was a 10-man, that's ridiculous when Matt can take the fall or Christian or Luchasaurus can take the fall. Very, very strange. Uh, Maybe this is a creative switch due to Jeff Hardy apparently being injured and out of action. They didn't exactly clarify what's going on with Jeff. He was originally named for this match and then pulled from it. 
Uh, but that's why the Young Bucks should have won at double or nothing, like I predicted. Then again, we also have Mox and Brian Danielson, who are highly ranked. I believe they're the number two tag team right now and could easily be the team to take the titles off Jurassic Express, potentially setting up the Young Bucks as their main challenger. That would make a ton of sense as well. So one way or another, it seems like this is going to kind of come together. Um, but I did think it was a very strange booking decision having the Young Bucks beat half of the champions, the best half of the champions uh, in this match, one, you know, three days after losing to the Hardys. Swerve and Our Glory were backstage to cut a promo. Swerve introduced like his LA squad in a really weird moment. He said he and Keith Lee are like Kobe and Shaq, two single stars on one team. Lee said the team's name and that was it. It was really just a whole bunch of nothing. Athena was interviewed by Tony Schiavone. She had her eyes set on Jade Cargill saying all streaks were made to be broken and she would be the one to do it. Cargill cut her off, calling herself that bitch, of course. Stokely Hathaway said he's her publicist, calling her a queen and a goddess. Uh, Then Kiara Hogan got in Athena's face. Anna Jay and Chris Statlander got her back. And the segment kind of just fizzled from there. I thought it was a strong confrontation. And it's probably the most interesting thing that Jade's been involved in in months. Um, But at the same time, if you listen to the reaction of the live crowd, they popped for Athena. And then as soon as like she started talking, the whole segment completely died. I don't really know. I don't have much more to say about it. That's just really what happened. Uh, Wardlow fought JD Drake. Wardlow did his long um, Goldberg walk and then got his old entrance. He showed off and squashed Drake, winning with two power bombs. Wardlow was asked to speak when Mark Sterling came out in a neck brace, suing him on behalf of all the security he's attacked. He grabbed one and power bombed them and then shoved the lawsuit in the guy's mouth. So one of the strange things about Wardlow is he's being presented like Goldberg, but he's actually like 10 times as athletic and a lot more interesting with a lot more ability. I'd like to see him wrestle in longer matches against quality opponents. An example being the W. Morrissey match. That was the best Wardlow has looked in months because he was actually able to be showcased, took a little bit of punishment, sold a little bit, came back and got a win over a guy who tested him. That's what we need to see from Wardlow. I think he's the number one ranked singles guy. I'm assuming they're not going to put him right away with CM Punk. Maybe they put him against Scorpio Sky, which is what they should do, and give him the TNT Championship. That would be obviously a good match if they do it. But to follow up this, like, what's supposed to be a career-making win over MJF with him squashing JD Drake in 90 seconds and then Mark Sterling coming out and being his current adversary or whatever they're doing, it was really a big letdown. You know, we wanted a big, I wanted a big moment. I wanted to hear War Dog speak again. I wanted, you know, I wanted more. I wanted to buy into it and sink my teeth into it. And it was the opposite. It was like they gave us like a protein shake and they're just like, hey, enjoy this. It's a it's a meal replacement while we figure out what the hell to do with Wardlow. So I wasn't a huge fan of that. And then lastly, we had Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter against Ruby Soho and Tony Storm, which I believe is just a direct rematch of something they did on Rampage recently. Baker hit a twisting neckbreaker on Soho outside. Storm got the hot tag with a German suplex that dropped Hayter on her head. Hater countered a tornado DDT outside into a draping DDT off the apron, only to get splashed by Soho, who ate a sling blade from Baker. That was a great sequence. I did my best to describe it. Hater hit a butterfly suplex on Soho, and Hater got taken out. Ruby came back with no future, and Baker just kicked out flat at two. I thought it was her finisher. I guess I missed where she changed it to Destination Unknown, but okay. Uh, Baker then hit a swinging neckbreaker on Soho. There were a bunch of distractions. Soho finally hit Destination Unknown for the clean one, two, three. Hater then used Baker's title to attack the faces after the bell. So this was straight up 50-50 booking here. Like they wanted Baker and Cole to go over in the tournament. And now they gave Soho a win over Baker pretty much for no reason. The match was a bit of a drag at the end, but the middle of it was fire. It even got a this is awesome chant from the crowd. One of the better AEW women's matches we've gotten, which isn't a surprise because guess what? They let the good women's wrestlers actually wrestle. And there were three of them in this match. 3.25 stars and a B. Very, very entertaining. Um, that was it from AEW this week in terms of Dynamite. But I did get a DM slide. Of, he sent a couple of them. And it seems like he really wanted me to answer the question. So happy to do it. It's at uh, WGOK and J, Kyle and Joe. Uh, would love to hear your thoughts on Tony Khan his outburst at the press conference over the question about CM Punk drawing for them. It really seems like Tony forgets his role and comes off as an absolute mark at times. The pressure he has put on himself and the weight of on his plate have just become too heavy. 
So, okay, I do have a couple thoughts about this and the media scrum uh, in totality. <clears throat> in terms of his reaction to this question, on one hand, I agree it was unbecoming of someone in his position with his level of power. He should not be that emotionally affected by a simple question, even if it was a bad question, which it was a bad question. Because um, Tony was right in his answer. Like, like what he said was accurate in that it is absurd to suggest that CM Punk isn't a draw. How much time did I spend on this podcast last week talking about Punk being the only person that has truly moved the needle for AEW from a rating standpoint? And the idea of putting the championship on him at this time, trying to impress the Warner Media executives coming off of the NBA playoffs, like this being the time to do it, to kind of get them out of, I'm not saying they've had bad ratings recently because they haven't, they've been very good. But it's been a little bit of a ratings funk where they're not really seeing growth. They weren't consistently hitting the high upper, you know, 900,000 overall number. Their demo has gone down a little bit. This is the perfect time to put the championship on CM Punk because he is that movable, that, that, I almost called him a movable needer, uh, the needle mover. So yes, it was an absurd question. And Tony was correct to react to it in a little bit of an absurd fashion, but to go off the way he did was crazy. Um, however... The entire media scrum with Tony, and I did not watch the entire thing because, man, it went for a long time, but it was a joke, the parts of it I saw. Very few legitimate questions. No follow-ups. I don't think anyone asked about Jeff Hardy at all. It was more like an after party where Tony was kicking back with a drink and commiserating with his pals in the media than it was a media availability where someone is asked, good questions and sometimes tough questions at the end of events. And I've been on the, you know, they used to do them all the time. They don't do them anymore. But the NXT TakeOver media calls with Triple H and the, the, the calls that would uh, precede the NXT TakeOver events. And yes, there were journalists, or I should say wrestling reporters um, in those calls who did ask very softball questions and, you know, whatever. And yes, WWE did tell the media, we want questions on these calls only pertaining to NXT, but there were plenty of times where Triple H was asked very difficult questions and it, he would maybe answer them uh, well and then they would move on or maybe unsatisfactorily and then he would ask, be asked a follow-up question. I don't know that there were any follow-up questions during this media scrum. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I heard him asked about Velveteen Dream or uh, AEW or difficulties with X or Y or Z, people getting called up, changing their gimmicks. He answered all the questions. Now, again, they weren't always great answers because Triple H is Triple H and he kind of likes to go on a little bit. But he also didn't just spend the entire time like making friends with the media and basically doing that as a way to not be asked tough questions. So I would really like to see Tony Khan be in a situation where he does have to answer some very difficult questions and gets pressed on them because people have asked him about the women's division before and he gives a very milquetoast type of answer like, oh yeah, well, we have women and we're proud of them and they do a good job. But there's no, there's never a follow-up. Why don't you do more than one match per per show? Why don't you push this person and that person? Why is this person such a focus on the division? Why are the matches, you know, short on occasion? You know, a myriad of different questions he could be asked. He never, no one ever kind of presses him to actually give these detailed, thoughtful answers on some hot topics that are surrounding AEW right now. And I think a post-pay-per-view scrum, given that there's only four of them a year, this, this year five with Forbidden Door, there's very rare opportunities for the media in mass to do that. And I wish they would take those opportunities and try to get more out of him and get some really tough questions answered. So I was more disappointed with that than Tony's response. But I mean, the way that scrum went on and certainly, look, the way Tony Khan conducts himself, I'm no one to judge him. This, this is a successful man coming from a very successful family, um, he runs a bunch of businesses and teams and companies and, and does a really good job. He's clearly a very smart man. Um, but I will say that there is this like manic, uncontrollable nature to him at times. And it reveals itself on Twitter more freque frequently than any other medium. And it frequently comes back to bite him in the ass. I mean, the WWE accusations, which he didn't call them out individually, but the Twitter bot whole scenario and all his tweets Friday before Rampage to try to drum up interest, what he did this past week uh, with Money in the Bank and Dana White. I mean, I don't know, man. It just doesn't look good, I think, from the outside. And I'm kind of curious 
why he works that way on occasion. So I don't have those answers. Uh, but hey, if I ever get the chance to interview him, I promise I will ask the appropriate questions. Um, but that is it from this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast as we pr- provided you with an ultimate preview for NXT in your house, as well as uh, a full breakdown of the fallout from AEW Double or Nothing, including the very interesting MJF situation. A quick reminder of what is to come here on Getting Over. Follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast because on Saturday and Sunday this week, about an hour and a half before the respective shows begin, we will have live pre-shows for NXT In Your House and WWE Hell and a Cell on Saturday and Sunday, respectively, on Twitter Spaces. You guys will get to contribute, talk live with myself and Chris Vanini, ask questions, provide comments, and just hear our final takes ahead of those major shows. Also, on Saturday, as soon as NXT In Your House goes off the air, we will be back with NXT Instant Analysis. Check your podcast feeds. That will come out as soon as the show ends, and we will do the exact same thing on Sunday with WWE Hell in a Cell Instant Analysis as soon as that pay-per-view, or premium live events, I should say, goes off the air. Of course, we will be back the following Tuesday with a WWE breakdown, and then next Thursday, same bat time, same bat channel. We will be here to talk NXT and AEW once again. Do not forget also, folks, I already told you to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, but do not forget that this podcast, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, well, we're about one. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a review. Let people know how much you love the show, why you listen, and tell them why they should subscribe. Those ratings and reviews are oh so important to us. Thank you all for listening and joining us once again with this show now in the books. The Silver is going to leave you with three final words. Bye for now.